The following talk was given by Bear Gokon Bonnebacher at Zen Mountain Monastery. Gokon is a senior monastic and dharma holder in the Mountains and Rivers Order. He serves as director of operations at Zen Mountain Monastery and also helps run the National Buddhist Prison Sangha. This talk, like all of our talks, is given free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmm.org. Thanks for listening. In the Sutra on Fear and Dread, a person from outside of the Buddhist Sangha comes to the Buddha and asks him, says, Master Gautama, it's not easy to endure isolated forest or wilderness dwellings. It's not easy to maintain seclusion, not easy to enjoy being alone. The forests, as it were, plunder the mind of a practitioner who has not attained concentration. The forest, as it were, (laughs) plunders the mind of a practitioner who has not attained concentration. He agrees, he says, it's not easy to sit alone, to sit were plunders. And then the Buddha recounts, recalls his past years of practice before he was the Buddha, when he was practicing alone in the forest. And he said that he realized that when he was alone in the forest, practicing alone, these things would happen. Fear and dread would arise. He would be thrown off of his cushion, his seat, so to speak. And that he realized, in reflecting on this, he started to purposely go to places on particular nights where he knew this fear and dread would arise, might arise. It doesn't say this in the sutra, but I think I I saw it in a note or somewhere else where that this was from hearing like the, the cry of a peacock in the night, hearing the snap of twigs, rustle of leaves in the dark. And so the Buddha says to himself, what if in whatever state I'm in, when fear and dread come to me, I were to subdue that fear and dread in that very state. When fear and dread came to me while I was standing, I would not walk or sit or lie down. I would keep standing until I had subdued that fear and dread. When fear and dread came to me while I was sitting, I would not lie down or stand up or walk. I would keep sitting until I had subdued that fear and dread. When fear and dread came to me while I was lying down, I would not sit up or stand or walk. I would keep lying down until I had subdued that fear and dread. So I've been thinking about reactivity, seeing that in myself and in others, thinking about the kleshas, difficult emotions, afflictive emotions. This is a little bit of a continuation of a theme from the last couple of weeks partly from a retreat last week that Shoan and I offered, where we talked about the kleshas and working with the kleshas. I've been thinking about taking responsibility, something we talk about in practice, the difficulty of taking responsibility, sort of the challenge of that, and the kind of difficulty of seeing what that means. It's really... I think you could say that the 
the heart of practice. It is what makes practice work possible. I uh, like this sutra. I've liked that encountered this. I think this was actually one of the first. Um, we studied the sutra together during an ongo many years ago. And I remember Shugan talking about this passage and sort of um, seeing for the first time maybe how these ancient teachings, um, which can be hard to find your way into sometimes, like to find your way into how is this actually speaking about my practice, about my experience. But in this section, the Buddha is giving us some very direct as a practitioner. And so these sitting, standing, walking, are different forms of meditation that the Buddha taught. So we do sitting meditation primarily. But so doing walking meditation, which was a common practice, practitioners would walk up and down on a path in front of their little hut, doing walking meditation. And so he says when he was doing walking meditation and fear and dread arose in him. And he experienced these feelings in his body-mind. He would continue walking. He wouldn't stop doing his meditation until he had resolved that feeling, until it had passed, until it had been liberated. Whatever form of meditation he was doing, whatever he was doing when these feelings arose, He wouldn't move away. He wouldn't turn away until it had been resolved, until it had passed. He wouldn't change the situation, wouldn't distract. And this is interesting what first the questioner says and then the Buddha repeats, the forests, as it were, plunder the mind. What are the forests? What is that that, he's, that they're talking to? What are these forests? Is it the forests that plunder the mind, that turn, away, turn us away? Or our reactions? And so when an emotion arises, when something strong arises in us, he's suggesting don't turn away, don't move. There's this power, this discipline in Zazen, don't move. It's an external sitting with allowing your body to be still so that we can encounter directly our experience, whatever arises. And it is a kind of internal, not turning away, practice, not turning away. What happens then? Because usually we do move away in some way, in some form. We want to get away from something like fear and dread, something uncomfortable. We want to solve it. We're good at doing that. We're good at moving away, avoiding. The Buddha's telling us our feelings need to be felt. He's saying that that was his practice, to actually go to places where he would feel these things and stay. And not sure about this word subdue. So that's why I, so I, I hear that as resolve, liberate. 
allow to pass. In this practice of staying, discipline of staying, I think of the silence that we are in sometimes and what that's offering. And Sashin, for those of us who do Sashin, the discipline of just staying in Sashin, staying inside so that we stay with our direct experience so we can experience our experience. And the discipline and kind of trust of just staying inside and allowing ourselves to work things out with ourselves in Sashin, in a period of Zazen, to trust Zazen, to, to trust that staying with. And maybe if you can't, to notice when you turn away, right? when you want to speak in the silence, distract yourself in the silence, find a way to turn outside. Maybe to try and see, can you, can you see what you're turning away from? Is there discomfort? Is there discomfort in just being in silence? What is that? In the sutra, the Buddha doesn't quite like thread the needle on like, so he does this practice. He stays with his experience. He stays with his fear and dread each time until it passes. And then he goes on and, and the, this, this then leads to, or seems to lead to developing concentration, different levels of concentration insight. So I'm filling in a little bit. What did he learn? What was actually happening in this staying with? We are looking at the nature of things, into the nature of things, looking at our own experience. What is the nature of our experience? And so we see that things come and go. Sometimes it's very simple. There is this itch on your nose during a period of zazen. And you don't do anything. You stay where you are. And you see, it passes. A thought arises, and it may be difficult to let go of. But you stay on your seat. You keep your awareness open. It passes. An emotion arises. You stay where you, where you are. You don't feed it, fuel it. And you don't push it away, you just let it be there. And eventually it passes. I was remembering a friend talking about trying to quit smoking. She'd smoked for many, many years. And during this period, she was mostly just alone in her house. And she said every time she had the desire, she would just stop. Whatever she was doing, she would just stop and wait for the desire to pass, for that to move through her body and mind. And in this not turning away and staying with, there is also a possibility of then actually turning towards, turning into. And so I imagine the Buddha feeling fear and dread in his walking meditation. And he keeps walking, and he actually feels into, turns into that feeling. What is it? What is it? What is it underneath the story? Did he start to tell a story about it? When he heard the peacock call in the night, did there start to be a story about what that might be? 
How about below that story, below the thinking, below the thoughts, before the thoughts? What's there then? When it's not called anything anymore. It's kind of mysterious. What is there? Is there anything there? We're learning this in Zazen. This is why our concentration is so important. Letting our mind settle is so important. Learning that, learning to trust that. Allowing our mind to settle so that we can see what's happening below the thoughts. And developing concentration so that we can turn into, so with the breath, and closer and closer to the breath, to being just with the breath. What is that? Working with physical pain. We're not trying to be uncomfortable and to work with it when it arises, if it arises. What is it when you turn into that? When you don't name it, you don't try and stop it, you don't try and get away from it. Just that sensation. What is that then? What's there? With an emotion. I shared this in the retreat last week. I was in leading up to that retreat and some other things that were happening that week, feeling a lot of anxiety, my body, my chest, a cough going. And in Zazen was working with that, was sort of taking up this teaching. There weren't really words that I could see, story that I could see. I could guess what it was about. But just turning into that sensation, just giving that awareness, just being with that, not doing anything with it, just this energy, sensation. It's kind of mysterious. What is that then? It is not what I thought it was, think it is, when I'm not thinking about it, calling it anything. We call it empty. We are practicing learning to relax the mind, relaxing our constant reactivity, quieting that, loosening that. How much of our thinking is reactivity? Most of it? To what? And so just calming that, allowing that to calm. That's calming the kleshas, developing stability, learning to trust that, rest in that. And there is looking directly. What's there? What's actually there? And as I hear Shugan saying, doing that over and over again. Dadaroshi used to say, one of the things that he used to say frequently, is only you can make yourself angry. I've said that to some people recently, like an interview. See how that kind of stops feeling myself. I say that to myself or when I say it. It kind of stops something. Only you can make yourself angry. 
I've been reflecting on that some. And I was thinking, you know, there's a way in which it's easy to talk about anger because there's a sort of clarity in the, the particular energy of anger. And it is just one of the kleshas. I think it was been one of Dido's primary kleshas or stronger kleshas. But this teaching applies to any of them, right? Only you can make yourself jealous, arrogant, prideful, caught in desire. The teachings are always pointing us to our own mind. So how do we use that? I've been um, reading a book called um, The Buddhist Unconscious by Bill Waldron, um, which is not an easy book. Um, He is, is the sort of focus is this um, Yogacara understanding of the Buddhist unconscious. Of our, of our unconscious. But in, in sort of explaining that, there is a lot of sort of explaining how early Buddhism was trying to understand and, and understand our experience. Right? Really, that's what all of the teachings are about, is understanding our experience, pointing us to our experience, helping us to understand our mind. And part of um, one of the things that, that I've been appreciating and finding helpful is, is the teaching of dependent origination. There's a cause for everything has a cause. And looking at that in relation to the kleshas, how does this help us to loosen, help us to see into so he says, kleshas arise from underlying disposition, an underlying disposition, an object, an incorrect apprehension. These things coming together. And so there is the presence, the tendency to anger in me. That is necessary for anger to arise. It is a habituated response to the discomfort to particular objects that has been developed in me. So there is an underlying disposition, a habitual tendency. There is an object. Something happens. Someone says something. So we're not alone in this. But the teachings are always pointing us to where we can work. And there's incorrect apprehension, an incorrect understanding of that object. How is that? This is the place to look. How is it that our apprehension is incorrect? I think this is what the Buddha was looking at in this Sutra of Fear and Dread. What's happening when this feeling arises in me? What is it that I'm reacting to? Can I see that? There is the sound in the dark, in the night, in the forest. A feeling arises, my body-mind. And there's a reaction to that feeling, a habitual reaction. The habit is, I have to do something about this. I have to get away from this. I have to fix this. I have to explain this. 
Understand this. Get rid of it. Something to not feel this discomfort. So we can use that. Look at that. Yesterday I received an email, and reading it I was having all kinds of, like, uncomfortable feelings. Okay, I'm having a reaction. It is a habituated response. I can stay, not respond yet, keep listening. What's happening? What happens when it settles? What's there then? Waldron says these habituated patterns of afflicted response to everyday experience play an essential role in the perpetuation of our bounded cyclic existence. Perpetuation of our bounded existence, of our experience of samsara, of our suffering. So this is where we practice. Studying, working with our habituated patterns of response, of afflicted response. Recognizing them, learning to recognize them as habituated patterns. And so the teaching on dependent origination, I think that in a sense this is all pointing to that, right? There are things coming, in every moment there are things coming together to create that experience. Every experience is conditioned as a result of causes and conditions. There are multiple factors in any moment of experience coming together. Nothing arises by itself. And so, just in seeing an object, there is an object, there is consciousness, and there is my eye, that all have to come together for that simple moment to happen. And kind of the heart of the teachings, and there are 12 steps of dependent origination, but kind of the heart of that is so there is this, there is contact, right? We have a, a sensory experience. We feel something, we see something, touch something, or it's in our mind, right? A mental object. There is, so that's contact. It's just contact. But then right after that, there is, there is some feeling. There's some response to that. I like that or I, don't, or I don't like that. It's pleasurable or it's really not pleasurable. It's uncomfortable. But it's just that. Pleasure, not pleasure. But from that comes craving, which we usually think of as, I want that because it tastes good or it feels good. But it's also, I don't want that because it doesn't feel good, it doesn't taste good. That develops into grasping, which is a more active trying to get that that feels good. And what we sometimes think of aversion is just the other side of that. I don't want that. Avoid what's uncomfortable. And out of that comes action. We act. Right? And because it's arising from grasping, from aversion, from our attachment, it continues the cycle. The cycle of suffering. So I think this is interesting. This, the, the, when something makes us uncomfortable, we, we react. Right? 
we usually think of this around pleasure, desire. The noble truths are usually explained as the cause of suffering is desire. Right? But there's the other side of that. There's the not wanting. Or there's sort of a mix of both. I don't want that. I don't want it to be this way, and I want it to be this way. And that's just like happening in us. So again, this is pointing to our own mind, what's happening in our own mind. And so knowing this, knowing that there, this is happening, right, there is this cycle. It happens so quickly that we, we usually don't see it. It is a habitual pattern. It is a cycle. We can shift that. We can interrupt it. Change the flow of the habit. Change the flow of the river. He says, all of our experience is conditioned by our underlying tendencies and habits. It's very difficult to see this. Because he's talking here about something that really is unconscious. We can't see these underlying tendencies. But so these teachings are pointing that out for us. We have them. Right? And we can see sort of the reflections of them. Right? Because we can see, we can notice, study our patterns, our habitual tendencies. Right? The way that we react is coming from these underlying tendencies. So to allow that to raise a question, what's happening? And to, and sort of knowing this, to reflect on that. I thought of, of um, I guess he, ultimately he was just calling himself Bernie, but Tetsugen Roshi was one of Daida Roshi's Dharma brothers. And he would just say, it's just my opinion. It's just my opinion. It's just my own conditioned view of things. It sounds kind of, you know, it sounded kind of flipped to me. But there's something in that, right? Because we don't see it that way. Right? We think our view is true. It's just my opinion. Just my conditioned view, influenced by my own underlying tendencies, my habituated response. So that can help us to soften, loosen. Waldron says, each type of affliction reacts to certain objects in habitual ways. Right? There are certain objects. There is that certain person, that certain thing that happens, a certain thing that someone says that we react to in the same way every time. For a while I was having a... Um, I would go to get some milk for my tea, and there'd be no milk. I'd be like, oh. I'd go into the kitchen, there's no milk. It's all, there's this whole, you have to like decan it from this big, big bladder, and I'd be like, come on. And I would just see that there was this like, things that would say inside, feeling that arise in my body. So I started when that happened, I would just go and fill up some jars of milk. It's different. So I know this may be a little dry and philosophical, but I think that it really is, it's, it is pointing to, it's trying to point to 
everything that happens, all of our reactions, there are these different parts to what's happening. It is not inevitable. And at each one, and, and, and we can look for that. In each one of these different steps, there is the opportunity to do something differently, to sort of interrupt that, to loosen the pattern. It is also helpful to look at, well, where does this come from? In noticing our habits, in noticing our reactions. Is there history? Is this something that's old, something that I learned in, as a, in my childhood? Why do I react to this particular person in this particular way? Do I get something from my reaction? Do I get to feel superior? I say, come on, why can't you fill up the milk? Or do I get to feel inferior? Get to feel bad about myself? Why do I do that over and over again? What does that give to me? Is it just that it's familiar? And some of this is, is like modern Western psychology. But that can be helpful. And... I hear in these ancient Buddhist teachings kind of the same thing. It is old. Our habits are old. They may be older than we can imagine. There is history. They have been developed over time. That's why they are deeply ingrained and hard to see as habits, as hard to see that they are conditioned. There's a story from the desert fathers, these are Christian mystics, practitioners, fourth century, who went out into the desert, I think this is Egypt, Syria, what's now those countries, because life in the cities in the fourth century had gotten too complicated and distracting. There's a collection of some pretty brief stories sayings, teachings from these practitioners. A brother was restless in the community and often moved to anger. So we said, I will go and live somewhere by myself. And since I shall be able to talk or listen to no one, I shall be tranquil and my passionate anger will cease. He went out and lived alone in a cave. But one day he filled up his jug with water and put it on the ground, and it happened suddenly to fall over. He filled it again, and again it fell. And this happened a third time, and in a rage he snatched up the jug and broke it. Returning to his right mind, he knew that the demon of anger had mocked him, and he said, I will return to the community. Wherever you live, you need effort and patience, and above all, God's help. He returns to the community humbled, taking responsibility or seeing that he needed to take responsibility for his own anger, his own afflictions, his own reactions. It was interesting to read through some of these teachings. I've read them before, but looking for this story that I like, that I've looked at before, and to hear these, um, a very different tradition, 
with these practitioners, men and women, living very simple lives so that they could encounter their mind, work with their mind, work with their, work with themselves. And that of course they're working with the same things, with desires, with anger, with pride, spiritual pride, sort of a running theme in some of these stories. And looking for how to, how to work with these. So both appreciating the, just the similarities, some of the practices, similarities, and appreciating our Mahayana teachings. That we can't just get rid of these things, these tendencies. We cannot shut them off or shut them out. We can find our way to being at peace with them, not being controlled by them. And so this practitioner returning to his community, taking responsibility for his own reactivity, his own practice, his own transformation. This can seem so hard to turn inwards and to be just with our own, to take responsibility for our own everything that arises to see that that's where our work is. It doesn't mean that we're alone in it. It doesn't mean that there aren't sort of proper boundaries that we at times need to establish, that there is an injustice in the world. That comes up as a question, and I guess I was thinking, as I was working on this, that just to let it, but, but so this is what Buddhism points to, is that this is where we can work in this way in this way. It is not the only way to work. It is not the only work. But there is transformation in this way. We turn so quickly outside. There is even modern jargon for it, right? Blame throwing. I thought I was being kind of like current with that term. And so there's a taking responsibility of when we've made a mistake to say, yeah, it's my fault. I was thinking about this sometimes when, um, as the, I'm the Eno, so I'm in, in charge of, um, res- responsible for the liturgy being um, taken care of. In the times when I have not explained clearly, or when I've just forgotten something and something has gone wrong, so to speak. And the times when I've just been able to say, yeah, it's my fault. It was my responsibility. I forgot. I wasn't clear. And whether that's when someone is upset because they have made a mistake or when Shugan has come to me and said, well, how come that's happening? I said, oh, it's just, it's my, that's my fault. And just to feel how it changes everything. I'm not tight, the other person isn't tight.
And it can seem so hard to do that. Why is that so hard? Why can that be so hard? And then doing it, it's like, that wasn't hard. That wasn't hard. And there is, and there is the taking responsibility of just turning in and working with our own reactions, working with our own everything. Finding how do we, how do I, how do I, how do I resolve this? How do I liberate this? My suffering is happening here. This is where it gets resolved. So often we want to change what's outside. We want to change the other person. I want to change the other person, control the other person. It seems so obvious that that's the solution. I was thinking about how almost never have my teachers, I was thinking about times with Shugen Roshi, has he ever said something very directly so I was thinking about times when I was in conflict with other people, people in the Sangha, and it's like, I can see now he must have seen really pretty clearly what was happening, what I was doing, my role in it. And I was, I was you know, there, the situations I can think of is like, I knew something was going on. I was struggling. I was coming to him with that. Help me. I'm trying to work this out. I'm trying to understand this. I'm suffering and I see that they're suffering. Even though I couldn't see what I was perpetuating, what I was doing. And the sort of patience and trust. It wasn't going to work for him to say, yes, this is what you're doing. Stop, you know, let go of that. There were some gentle, like, hints. There's really only one time I can remember when he called me into the Dokusan room and he said, have a seat. And he said very directly, you need to be nicer to her. One time, all this time. So what is that? We have to see it for ourselves, to see it inside and work with it inside. And so, um, some of these are sort of difficult teachings, both to like find our way into and um, actually do. And this is the this this. So, what the Buddha is doing in this kind of simple, direct teaching of fear and dread is pointing to the revolution. Right? So, the possibility of transformation, in just staying, working with my own experience in here, in here, resolving it here. I was worrying as I was working on this, oh, this is going to be sort of like a, um, not such an uplifting, like, talk. And then feeling, but this is the good news. This is the good news if we can find our way into that. This is the, it is the possibility of, ref, of revolution, of transformation. 
So may it be good news. May we take care of what we can take care of for ourselves and for others. Thank you for listening. To find out more about ZMM's programs, retreats and residency, please visit us online at zmm.org.